Welcome to another edition of Time Out with Dentons. In our last podcast, Jenny Andrews gave us an insight into the New South Wales regulatory response to the National Leasing Code. And today I'm speaking with Guy Albeck, my Melbourne-based real estate partner, about the Victorian response. Guy, no doubt you'll be excited to know that in Queensland this afternoon, the Queensland regulatory response was passed and we now have the retail shop leases and other commercial leases bracket COVID-19 emergency response bracket regulation 2020. So it looks like we'll probably have the opportunity to do one more of these time out with Dentons on leasing issues affecting Australia um, before we come to a close on time out with Dentons. COVID-19 leasing. But in real estate law, we don't often see such rapid pace of legislative change or enactment as we've seen in the last three months, or so as the respective state governments have geared up their leasing COVID-19 responses. What have you seen in Victoria and what does the timing look like? And is it a bit different from New South Wales, certainly is from Queensland? And how has the Victorian government responded? Hi, Matt. Yeah, pleasure to be here. In Victoria, we've obviously got the National Code, which was passed quite a few weeks ago in early April. And uh, in Victoria, to uh, give effect to the code or to supplement the code, we've got the Act, the Victorian Act, but the COVID-19 Omnibus Act was passed on the 24th of April. And then we had the regulations, which is where I suppose the real meat on the bones is, which, which was passed sometime later. And uh, it was released on 1 May 2020, to be exact. And they both apply for the period 29 March 2020 to 29 September 2020 at this stage, depending on where, what direction uh, the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic takes. Interesting you say that, uh, Guy, because when, when we were having a chat to Jenny the other week, um, the New South Wales legislation really focused on what was an eligible lease and, and who was an eligible tenant. Is the Victorian legislation drafted similarly? Uh, it is drafted similarly. Yeah. There are more similarities than there are differences, and that, I suppose, illustrates that they're both pieces of legislation supplements to the national code. But there is a concept of an eligible lease in the Victorian legislation, like the New South Wales legislation, and an el- eligible lease in Victoria is a lease where the tenant has an annual turnover up to $50 million and is eligible and a participant in the Commonwealth Government's JobKeeper program, which effectively means the tenant's revenue is down by at least 30% compared to the same time last year. There's a notable difference there, though, with, with the New South Wales legislation. And I think you only need to be eligible for the JobKeeper program in New South Wales, whereas in Victoria, you also need to be participating in it. Is that participation during the course of your COVID-affected lease, or is it just at a snapshot in time when you might be actually undertaking some sort of negotiation with your landlord or your landlord is expected to respond in a particular way? Because I can envisage a situation where businesses for, could fall in and out of participation or eligibility for JobKeeper. Um, yeah, I don't think the uh, the Act or the regulations really deals with that so much. I mean, there is there is an opportunity in the Victorian legislation to go back to the well, so to speak, if you continue to suffer financial hardship or or, um, or finan- suffer more financial hardship than than you originally did when you first applied for rent relief with your landlord. But there's there's no real arrangement, at least in the Act and Regulations, where you have to keep proving your eligibility for the JobKeeper program or indeed to, to, to be an eligible lease. Uh, it's a fairly short-term 
operative legislation anyway. So we might have to wait and see on that one. When, when does your legislation expire again? It expires on the 29th of September, which differs again from the New South Wales regulations, which I think expire on the 24th of October. And each state appears to be slightly different from the other. One of the states, I think, expires at the end of the year. It might be Western Australia, but not too sure on that one. In fact, one of the challenges that we see some of the landlords facing, particularly if they've got portfolios, or indeed the tenants facing if they've got portfolios that cover state boundaries, is is how you actually understand what your rights are in each of the relevant jurisdictions because they do differ and they only may differ slightly but each difference has an impact um, and we're starting to see that now as the regulations unfold throughout the country. How what's the process in Victoria if you were to um, follow your way through the regulations and see how it might impact the tenant or the landlord? Yep so um, the first step in the process is the rent relief request which is made by the tenant to the landlord uh, in writing, obviously. Um, it needs to include a statement attesting to the tenant's eligibility and that he qualifies and, as I said before, participates in the JobKeeper scheme. That's the first step. Once the landlord uh, receives that request, assuming it's compliant, the next step in the process is the landlord's rent relief offer, which has to be given to by the landlord to the tenant, again in writing within 14 days of the tenant's rent relief request. As long as the tenant has complied with this obligation, and this part in the Victorian regulations is a bit unclear, the landlord can't actually evict the tenant or re-enter the premises um, and isn't allowed to call on any security for non-payment of rent. So it's slightly vague in respect of what the tenant needs to have done or performed in order to be protected, I suppose, by the moratorium that's enshrined in the code and the legislation. But again, that'll have to play out. So the, the landlord's uh, rent relief offer needs to take into account a whole bunch of things which are broadly under the, the umbrella of all the circumstances of the lease and they need to relate to 100% of the rent payable under the eligible lease during the relevant period. They need to provide no less than 50% of the rent relief offered uh, in the form of a waiver of rent unless the tenant agrees otherwise. So there is some um, limited opportunity to opt out at the tenant's discretion and needs to apply to the relevant period, which is the period we talked about before in terms of the operation of the legislation. It also needs to take into account the reduction in a tenant's turnover associated with the premises during the relevant period, whether a failure to offer sufficient rent relief would compromise a tenant's capacity to fulfil the tenant's ongoing obligations under the eligible lease, including the payment of rent. Uh, it needs to take into account a landlord's financial ability to offer rent relief, including any relief prov provided to a landlord by any of its lenders. There's also land tax relief that's, that's offered to landlords in the circumstances, which probably needs to be taken into account. And it also needs to factor in any reduction to any outgoings charged, imposed or levied in relation to the premises. So pretty extensive list of issues that need to be covered, but not dissimilar from New South Wales, as you say. But it, it assumes, though, from what you've said there, that agreements capable of being reached on those particular issues. If you can't reach agreement, are you thrust into some sort of mediated outcome in Victoria? So in the first instance, a dispute uh, is referred to mediation coordinated by the Small Business Commissioner, and that's, uh, that's very consistent with the Retail Leases Act being the, uh, the retail tenancy legislation in Victoria. If uh, a resolution can't be reached through 
mediation in that forum, then it's open to either of the parties to escalate the matter to the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, VCAT. You mentioned there that we work our way through a process of request offer agreement and then in relation to enforcement, there were certain prohibitions that you could do as a landlord, one of which was call upon security for breach. One of the issues that keeps coming up, and you know, we've moved a little way down the path now, is am I entitled as a landlord to call upon a security for a breach for non-payment of rent that arose pre the regulations, so pre-COVID related breaches, and then call upon a security and actually not offend the regulations or the legislation in the relevant state. In Victoria, if I had a debt due from January, say, would I be able to issue a default notice and call up a security, given that it's clearly non-COVID related because the legislation hadn't begun at that point? Yes, you would. And the Victorian legislation, which is similar to the to the other states' legislation in respect of uh, pre-existing breaches, is uh, is fairly robust, and that's that's a positive outcome for landlords. So you know, tenants can and have put up their hand to perhaps in a somewhat opportunistic manner to seek to rely on the protections of the uh, of the COVID legislation. But thankfully for landlords, the legislation includes protections or prohibitions from opportunistic tenants, if you will. So, so where does the rubber hit the road in the practical sense on on uh, these regulations? You've had them for certainly longer than we've had in Queensland. We've had them for about four hours. <laughs> but any issues, anecdotes, war stories that you've already encountered and you've tried to document or tried to chart your way through the months? Uh, yeah, I suppose uh, I've certainly got a, a couple of examples of opportunistic tenants and they're to be given credit for that. I had a tenant recently um, ask one of our landlord clients for rent relief based on a substantial drop in turnover as a result of the pandemic. Um, The landlord approached us for advice and the tenant was running some sort of short-stay accommodation business from the premises, primarily for overseas students. And while the tenant did indeed appear to be suffering significant financial hardship, there are obviously not many overseas students coming in at the moment. The lease the tenant was seeking relief from was a residential lease, and that required the tenant to use the premises as a residence and not run a business from it. So ironically, in seeking relief, the tenant inadvertently disclosed a persistent breach of an essential term of its residential lease. Needless to say, when the landlord advised the tenant that it was in default and threatened termination, the rent relief request was abandoned. That's certainly an interesting uh, set of circumstances, but what it does show you, doesn't it, Guy, is that there are many issues that you need to think about and bring to bear before you actually put your hand up under this uh, legislative response because you could trip yourself up quite clearly, whether it be as tenant or landlord. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's concerns uh, from both sides of the equation, that is landlord and tenant, about how much they need to show each other or how much they feel that they should disclose to each other in terms of their financial performance in in relation to the premises. And, you know, there's obviously concerns about confidentiality and similar types of issues. We had another uh, case recently where um, a commercial tenant approached us. It was generally suffering financial hardship. It was participating in the JobKeeper program and it had issued a a rent relief request to the landlord and the landlord had just kind of responded by saying these are all the things that 
we need to take into account and you need to prove all these things to us. And then the 14-day period for the landlord to give its offer would then start. But they were just kind of raising unrealistic requests, for example, for the tenant to prove that it was solvent, but on the other hand, also prove that it was eligible for JobKeeper, which just didn't really make sense. We stepped in, turned their uh, their rent relief request into a fully compliant rent relief request. That's not to say it wasn't compliant in the first instance, and then issued that to the landlord and, and reminded them of the 14-day period in which they had to, to submit their offer. We then heard from a chartered accountant, which had been appointed by the landlord, asking for even more information. So our advice at that point in time was just initiate the mediation process. So you can kind of see that both sides of the equation, I suppose, are testing the limits of the uh, of the legislation so early on in its operation. So that's kind of interesting to observe and, and try and deal with. And then over the top of this, which is a really interesting situation, and I know this is a real area of interest for you, Guy, and, and, and you hold a, a particular expertise in it, but is What's the third response to commercial leases? Because, you know, as of the 29th of March, we had that additional overlay imposed by the Federal Treasurer uh, in relation to third applications. What are you seeing there just as, a you know, an additional issue that we're now having to face? Yeah, so um, FERB were very quick uh, off the mark in response to COVID-19. And, and for those that aren't aware, FERB stands for Foreign Investment Review Board which uh, passed the uh, Foreign Acquisitions and Takeovers Amendment Threshold Test Regulations 2020, uh, which took effect at 10.30pm on the 29th of March. So out of that change to FERB's uh, policies, if you will, uh, we've seen a flurry of activity, particularly in the the commercial leasing space, necessitating uh, FERB approval to lease transactions which wouldn't have met the thresholds pre the changes or pre the announcement. So the changes themselves, the threshold was reduced to $0 for all acquisitions of interests in Australian land. It was always $0 for vacant land, so that's unaffected, but for developed commercial land, which is predominantly what leases are for, the thresholds used to be you know, over a billion dollars for free trade agreement countries, it's $1.192, $275 million for non-free trade agreement countries, and $60 million for sensitive commercial land, which is mines and, and critical infrastructure, I think it's characterised at. So shifting those thresholds to $0 for every single type of transaction really caught within a, um, a lot of commercial leases. So we've We've been applying for numerous uh, FERB approvals in relation to uh, specifically lease transactions over the last few weeks. Yeah, obviously, Guy, one of the the things that then throws from that is that if every application needs to go via FERB in relation to what is now caught with a $0 threshold, then FERB's going to need some significant time within which to be able to consider these applications. Now, the statutory timetable, presumably that's been increased. It has been increased, Matt. Thank you for raising that. So the statutory approval period has been increased from 30 days to six months, which is quite extraordinary. But in our experience, I think FERB also hired significant staff resources um, to deal with this straight away. So they're to be given credit for that. 
And in our recent, our very recent experience since the announcement, uh, we've found them to be firm that is to be quite responsive. And particularly if you, if you can satisfy FERB that there are hard commercial deadlines or that the transaction is supported by the government as, say, a, a priority project or will create jobs or otherwise support the Australian economy or are in the national interest, you can you can have FERB deal with, a, with an application very quickly indeed. In fact, I think we had like a a sub-two-week turnaround on a, on such an application quite recently. So without saying that it's a statutory timetable and we'll use every last second of it, it really provides the Treasury with a buffer of time within which to consider applications that are made. And, and that's actually very encouraging that uh, the Treasury is uh, turning them around as quickly as they are in terms of the number of applications that we're going to see, particularly in relation to leases, some of which relate to agreements for lease and some of which relate to uh, direct leases or resulting leases. Yeah, and that, that actually raises another issue. I wouldn't go so far as to, for example, put a, a sunset condition, a sunset date under a, under a condition precedent or lease of anything less than the statutory period as increased to six months. But yeah, signs are encouraging, as, as you've noted, but but you've also touched on you know, agreements for lease, and that's kind of raised a lot of a lot of issues recently for landlords and, well, I suppose tenants in particular in relation to lease transactions that were at various stages when the announcement was suddenly made. So, at what point is a lease transaction considered to be an acquisition for FERB purposes? And if that date is prior to or after the announcement date, um, which threshold is it covered by? Obviously, um, tenants would probably prefer that, that they could say that the lease was entered into um, pre-announcement because then they, they may not need FERB approval. But uh, if it was post-announcement, then they most definitely do need FERB approval with that $0 threshold. So you've got AFLs and that's agreement for leases, which give rise to a lease. And then prior to that, typically in your in your leasing transactions, you've got heads of agreement or MOUs or letters of offer and so forth. The FERB in its guidance notes has formed the view that typically a heads of agreement or similar document is is insufficient to constitute an acquisition or the completion of a lease transaction. But they've left the door slightly ajar there by, by suggesting that it, it depends on all the facts and circumstances of the particular transaction. To use the exact wording, they've said the agreement will need to be one where the negotiations have been completed and the parties have arrived at a mutual understanding of all the essential elements of the bargain. So. We'll leave it to uh, to the parties to form a view around that. We've been we've certainly been asked to give advice and form our own view about how to interpret the guidance note in the context of the uh, of the changes in relation to agreements for lease, which are probably the next step beyond a letter of uh, letter of intent or heads of agreement. The commonly held view among our colleagues, the National Real Estate Partners at Dentons, is that if the agreement for lease is fully executed pre-announcement and the form of lease to be entered into down the track is attached to the AFL, then the lease is a pre-announcement acquisition and is not caught by the $0 threshold. Well, thanks, Guy, for that summary there of the FERB issues. And we've also touched, obviously, on the, the Victorian regulatory response. I know you've been a prolific a publisher of material in relation to both topics because they're of personal interest to you. And you've also been putting some of your material up on the Denton's COVID Hub, which is accessible via our website. 
and also you've been uh, personally posting quite a bit of information in relation to these two topics. One of the things that it seems to me that is still going to evolve is we've only got a very small window for all of these responses to apply. So the Victorian regulatory response has a six-month window, and we heard Guy say expires in, I think you said September, Guy, and then we've got the yep. um, six-month from the 29th of March verb response, so that will expire in this round similar timetable. And then we're not sure what's going to happen after that. So again, in the, in the case of real estate law, there's an element of watch this space and we'll have to start thinking about what that looks like after September or October. So Guy, on that note, I'd just like to thank you for your commentary this evening on both those topics. And thank you again for taking time out with Denton's. My pleasure.